Hello, and welcome to Open Door Philanthropy, Giving Advisors. I am here with my friend Amy Schiller, who is the author of the book, The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong, and How to Fix It. Hello, Amy. Hey, Dave. Great to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, Fans of the show will know we like to dive right into it with our guests, so we will do that. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Casual stuff. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, specifically a suburb known as Shaker Heights, Ohio. Shaker Heights. Yep. Um, what was my childhood like? Um, I had two very loving, educated parents. I had four grandparents who, um, up to the age of 35, were all living. My dissertation is dedicated to my grandparents. Um, I had... Uh, Sorry, your two... grandparents were are all around until you were 30. Until I was 35. That's correct. Right, 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 right. And I got my PhD at 34, and my dissertation is dedicated to all of my grandparents who were at that time still living, um, which is a, a tremendous, a tremendous jewel, yes. a tremendous gift. And in fact, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think uh, one of the many reasons that I chose to do that is because I had these grandparents and also these parents who really modeled lives of generosity, of community building, um, of lifelong learning. Um, one grandparent in particular, my grandpa Howie, uh, he, so uh, because my parents grew up, both of them on Long Island, they did not know each other um, on Long Island. They met when they both relocated to Cleveland for their educations, uh, but they were from Long Island. And my grandparents therefore had the majority of their grandchildren, both in my nuclear family and two other, uh, you know, the sort of combined siblings families. Um, a lot of their, all their grandchildren were in Cleveland. They were in the New York metro area. So they decided to buy a home about two hours from Cleveland um, and spend the summers there in Western New York. Um, and this is, this is a place that I spent my summers. It's very important to me. It's called the Chautauqua Institution. Um, and there, uh, I, I say all of this because it is both emblematic of my upbringing and also things that shaped my perspective on philanthropy. So my grandfather um, would organize the neighborhood breakfasts in the little park and he would go out and get like the donuts and the coffee. Um, and like two weekends a season, we'd have everyone come in and just hang out and get to know each other in our little neighborhood. And he uh, rode his bike around and uh, with the permission of parents, I cannot emphasize this enough, would take these incredible portraits of kids and then develop those portraits and put them on cork boards and hang them in the ice cream parlor so that the kids could all come and see themselves, see pictures of themselves on this cork board. Um, and then he would give the negatives to the parents. And to this day, I still have people around this community who say, I still have pictures your grandfather took of my kids, of our family. We use them for Christmas cards, etc. cetera. Um, my dad is a psychologist. My mother is a Jewish educator. Um, and we were very active in Jewish community. We celebrated Shabbat and holidays. Um, so ultimately very, you know, nurturing, um, uh, definitely financially secure um, and perhaps 
beyond that to to one or two ticks it's it's kind of an interesting combination but like you know we were able to travel see our grandparents in florida when they moved to florida we were able to you know spend our summers in this very special place so there were things that we i was able to take music lessons i went to public school um and graduated from shaker heights high school um i have a brother he is uh just under three years younger than me and um yeah i had a a a really uh lovely and well-supported childhood with lots of community um and enrichment around me so you grew up in shaker heights i did were all four of your grandparents near nearby no they were they no the um only in the summer in the okay. summer, one set of grandparents was two hours away, and we in would go Chautauqua. and stay with them in Chautauqua, and we would go and stay with them for a few weeks at a time. Um, we would see them at like Thanksgiving, maybe one other time. Um, in the early part of my childhood, my grandparents were living in uh, Long Island, and then uh, starting around uh, 10, 11, 12 or so, they had moved down to Florida, as is, as is the custom. Uh, you might call it Long Island so- South. A lot of family and a lot of support. What, yeah, kind of activi- what kind of activities did you enjoy as a little girl? Big reader. Big reader. Um, my mom got me a blanket that said book woman. Um, lots of reading, lots and lots of reading. Um, I played an instrument for a while. I played the trombone, which uh, though I'm not visible, uh, <laughs> I feel the need to say when I got it, it was taller than me. Um, I went in to pick out an instrument and was choosing between flute and trombone. So I'm pretty sure my criteria was just shiny. Um, one of the shiniest instrument. Um, I, um, let's see, not, not, not really like a sports kid. Um, I'm sure there were sort of half-hearted attempts, uh, to kind of, you said reader, what kind of book did you read as a kid? Okay, so to this day, I will still reread Anne of Green Gables, not just the first, of course, but all seven books in that series. Um, so a lot like historical fiction, um, strong female protagonists, you know, your Witch of Blackbird Pond kind of situation. American Girls uh, figured very prominently. I actually wrote an article over 10 years ago about the American Girl doll brand shift and got a lot of feedback from it and of course that's become a big uh, discourse now um that brand yes. and how it sort of shaped girlhood for people and I, I was sort of caught up in that um i assume you as you've told me before that the child of a historian will appreciate the contribution that american girl dolls made to our um broader he, used to get a le- he actually gave a lecture about um barbie dolls did you my, my father used to your father in one of his classes one, wow. of the, one of the lectures was about was a, it was a full lecture about the history of barbie dolls in the u.s because i remember one day like he was doing research for it and he had like a bunch of books about barbie lying around man uh, that's the the i had forgotten about that until the movie came out recently i was able to watch the movie with him which was pretty and my mother is a women's studies professor so um i was a women's studies major in college the, yeah, so actually, see, he, uh, you probably owe your ability to do that a little bit to mom because there weren't, um, when she was in college, there weren't women's studies departments. And the one that she was involved with, she was actually got her PhD in French and had to create the women's studies department. 
Fantastic. Well, and, I, and I in fact, at the time, it was the same. My father was doing the same stuff around uh, a topic that's called American studies. Um, yep. And, and, uh, so in general, we sort of assume women's studies, American studies. I think they're on almost every campus, but uh, they are offshoots of of other topics. And um, in particular, I think what I, what I like about it is you go to college, you should you should be getting interdisciplinary at that point. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so it doesn't need to just be basic. To, it, right. You should have a pretty good basic understanding of most topics if you're going to, especially a place like Colby College where they taught. Or where did you go yeah. to college? I went to Brandeis. Uh, Brandeis. Oh, yeah, Brandeis. Yep, yep. And I will say, weirdly enough, um, uh, you know, we are often sort of pushed to specialize in undergrad, or and certainly if you go to grad school, as I did, um, and yet somehow I managed to maintain a, a commitment to um inter or multidisciplinarity um when i was getting my phd i would frequently be seen taking classes in um like the literature department or you know art, art history or something like that um just because you know i really liked political philosophy but i was not especially interested in you know like stats models which is a lot of what the other course offerings were so i just sort of pivoted and went elsewhere and then i managed to keep that going through the postdoc, which I just ended, which is the Society of Fellows at Dartmouth College, which also is uh, multidisciplinary um, mm-hmm. as a cohort. So I seem to have sort of um, maintained a commitment quite quite against the grain of uh, of academic life, um, and said I'm I'm I've, I'm ungovernable, I'm undisciplinable. <laughs> well, I, I think that makes you a, a good fit for philanthropy. Uh, I as well have been fairly interested in, in, because my parents were interdisciplinarians, which is a word that I have heard them both use. Hmm. Um, the, I, you know, I, I majored in uh, theater arts at, at Dickinson, which I think is, is one of the most inter- interdisciplinary fields possible, uh, right? You, you yep. any play might be about any topic, right? Yep. So, yep. Uh, and you need, there are, any play that gets produced involves engineers, electricity, art, paint, uh, spoken word, written stuff like that. Uh, it's been a really great preparation for my career, which is, I think, juxtaposes some of the criticism that humanities education gets sometimes that it's not particularly useful in the real world. I couldn't, I really did. I mean, I think in terms of having me go build a house or something, yeah, none of what I learned at Dickinson right. was there. Um, but putting a philanthropy program together or criticizing a philanthropy program <laughs> what i learned there is is helpful on a on a daily basis i imagine that was true at brandeis i it, absolutely absolutely true i would i would relish uh my first job out of college not to get too far ahead of ourselves um i actually excuse me my first job was um on the finance team for a gubernatorial campaign in back in ohio um for mm. ted strickland who then went on to win his race and become the most recent democratic governor of Ohio. Um, and, uh, and then after that, I went on to a, a consulting firm that works on uh, running major gift fundraising efforts. Um, and this was a pretty, this is a pretty cool job. And I would often get asked by people who were sort of trying to, trying to break into the field. Like how did, what did I major in in college? And I would love telling them that I majored in women's studies. Love it. It was just like exactly that thing. Like, let's rewrite the script here. You know, you can, you can do a lot. I, I, once had a jo- I, I was in a job interview and the I, the guy interviewing me, I think, didn't want to hire me. 
but had had me in any and I think he was he was asking what he believed was a gotcha question yeah which was well, how is a theater degree going to help you right right and it, I gave I think probably one of the best answers I did get that job because I gave one of the best possible I completely turned him around on that and explained why you know the, so in general the, my answer was that theater is lots of people coming together to create something that that no not any one of them could have done right and right. I, that's relevant to any endeavor <laughs> so right you should really want to have me here uh one of the reasons i think on finalist uh works as efficiently as it does is my board chair and i both have theater backgrounds and so we have very similar um you know shared language and experience the process of theater is something that we're both familiar with and so we're able to work together in that way. Man, I'd, li I'd listen to a I'd listen to a podcast episode of you guys talking about just that. I'm inclined yeah. to agree with you, but I'd love to hear the the details of how that gets played out. What the, where I really know it's true is is when I work with someone who has never been involved in a in any kind of art production whatsoever. Hmm. I have that's who I have the most trouble working with. Okay, right. And it's because I will talk about things that they and it's just not there. They're on, they've never created art. Mm. So the process of it doesn't really exist, right? Uh, but the, for theater, particularly, they, what a lot of the theater experience that both Margaret and I have is on is uh, community stage theater, which is you know generally no one's getting paid, right? There's a limited amount of time and resources, but there is a focus on excellence. Yes, and very and, good. And, and in general, and there is a process that that almost guarantees excellence. We will rehearse this until we are excellent at it. Right, right, right. Very, and if we're that's not great. excellent at it, that means we haven't rehearsed it enough. And we know how to, there are different types of rehearsal. This has been, this is a field that has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. Thousands possibly, arguably. Right, right. Since first stepped out of the chorus. Yes, right? <laughs> yeah. So this is a profession that's had, it's got a real big jump start on philanthropy. If Margaret and I had to rely only on philanthropy terminology and processes to communicate right. to each other, right. that would be very difficult. I agree. I totally agree. Wow, that's great. I love that. In general, I think we do agree quite. A, I, having just read your book, you and I agree on quite a bit when it comes to philanthropy. Uh, we, I've got a couple points of disagreement that we'll get into later. Oh, and all of these questions just sort of setting you up there. Yeah. No. Great. <laughs> uh, one thing that's actually very similar between you and I uh, that um, this is both uh, this is we're still in the on background section here, but this also comes up in your book. Uh, you and on page ten tell everybody that you're jewish yeah <laughs> i that's, that's I, pretty I, late for me to be honest <laughs> yeah why did you take so long <laughs> uh, no i am in the habit of i don't necessarily look jewish i don't think people uh, you, uh, you your name is schiller um so i i imagine there's probably people who just assume right without I any mean, other yeah right the, they're, they're, had, they're not they're not surprised me. they're not surprised to have it confirmed you know what i mean yeah uh, yeah, I guess they don't, they wouldn't be able to know because Schiller could be a German name, which is yeah. almost the opposite of being Jewish. Um, Disagree and, with that, but we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> you could be a, you could be named Schiller and be extremely not Jewish. Sure, right. right <laughs> I don't, right. I didn't mean, yeah, not, uh, that's not, I didn't exactly mean opposite, but the, the yeah. that is one of the challenges in how to count Jews. Mm, um, mm -hmm. There are some studies that used to go off of surnames and they found it like, wildly inaccurate approach yeah kind of, no yeah kind of um but yeah i'm dave moss i don't lie blue eyes 
uh, and I live in Maine, and uh, and it's I don't it's not something that gets assumed very often. And I do, and I don't like people. If they don't assume I'm Jewish, they may assume I'm something else, and I don't want them making incorrect assumptions about my identity. It's important to me that I'm Jewish, and so I usually tell people pretty quick, even if it's not particularly relevant to what we're talking about. But I've found that it's it often is. It's usually good for people to know that, and also I don't want to hear. I've there've been a few times in my life where someone who didn't know I was Jewish said something very anti-Semitic, and I I like to avoid <laughs> those sorts of circumstances. But I wanted to ask yeah, you a little bit about. I I'm going to assume you mentioned it because it's an important part of who you are. An important part of how you would talk approach this topic of right the price of humanity. Am I? Yeah. Is that... Yes. Um, so so the question is like why why did I, take I talk about and... your Jewish identity? Is this an important important enough for you to put it right you know near right. the front of the book? Right. And this is not a book about religion or being Jewish or anything like that. No. 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 Um, so the broad strokes, yes. Uh, as I mentioned, my mother is a Jewish educator. Everywhere we would go in Cleveland, um, I would get a lot of like... For our Goyisher audience, <laughs> what is a yeah. Jewish educator? Right. So um, one thing that the Jewish community, and certainly not exclusively, but certainly the Jewish community has done is set up a, an apparatus of um, supplemental educational institutions. Um, this can range from like Hebrew school that you have to go to like after school and it's kind of like boring and dull to camps um, to like summer camp uh, to um, like retreats where you do like nature hikes and then talk about, you know, some part of the Torah like that, you know, there's a whole a whole spectrum of ways that um, they really try to help people engage with the substance of being Jewish um, and my mother does that uh, and she did it full time as the director of something called the retreat institute where that they did the weekend overnights retreats sort of education in a more informal immersive environment um it could be for um school age kids you know it could be for families whole range of things um really interesting stuff um all of which is to say it was you know understanding and learning about judaism was a huge part of my upbringing and everywhere I would go in Cleveland, if it was attached to the Jewish community, they'd be like, Oh, you're Judy's daughter. Oh, I know Judy. You know, like there's just a, a constant in my life. Um, and the book, what I bring up is the, uh, honestly, I brought it up because this particular incident. Um, so a bat mitzvah is the coming of age moment um, bar or bot for a, a young Jewish kid um, when they sort of reach an age of maturity where they can be responsible for their own um, communal contributions and ritual practice. Um, and part of what that includes in its current sort of iteration is that you do a, some sort of service project. And so there's a whole anecdote about the service project in the book because it's a great window to me into is philanthropy supposed to like make us feel better about ourselves or is it supposed to help us sort of engage with people who are different from us to learn about others to kind of decenter ourselves in an important way. Um, and I, in the, in the B'nai Mitzvah projects, um, those two things had sort of become conflated where it's like, Oh, you, this is, this is a thing that you're doing to demonstrate a kind of uh, concern for others or an interest in the needs and the lives of others. But in fact, more and more, the expectation is that it be something that is somehow like affirming of your identity or affirming of, of, of yourself. Um, and I found that 
interesting to put it in the book. Um, and then more broadly, of course, like growing up uh, it, with a, a strong Jewish background, um, we did grow up with values of what is called sadaka, uh, just the, it's not, it, it is, it includes the imperative to um, donate money um, to sort of engage financially in social justice, but also to pursue some kind of activism or volunteer work that um, helps to kind of make the world a more just place. Um, so that is all very much in the background. Um, and I, and I say all of that with the punchline that actually the book that I have written at now looking back over it, as I've done for a couple of months now talking about it with folks is like, this is an incredibly like Goyesha. It's an incredibly like not Jewish book. We've got stuff in there about St. Augustine. I've got stuff in there about Notre Dame cathedral, you know, got a lot of stuff in there from like a lot of other strains of, um, of, literature and a religious influence um and it's actually surprisingly not that focused um on the very rich varied um texts and and ideas from judaism about giving um and perhaps one day they will they will come back make their way in a more prominent role into a future writing project for me um excellent uh so there was uh, uh sounds like decent number of Jews in your community growing up? Yeah, Cleveland has one of the largest Jewish communities. Um, it's kind of a sleeper in that way, but it's 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 true. They're like per capita, especially it's at least. Probably a big difference between your Jewish experience and mine. We do have a temple here in my town, but it was different denomination. So, uh, right. and the, the rabbi had like offended my mom. Some, I don't really remember all the- So you just had the shul you didn't go to. You didn't have the shul yes. you go to. You yeah, only had the shul you didn't we go have, to. We have in fact told that joke to us. Um, but we usually we would go to my, I had cousins in uh, Massachusetts and would visit them often. And that was most of, there, there were more Jews living down there. And that was more like, if anything, if I went to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah or anything like that, it would have been down, it would have been down there. Um, the bat mitzvah, that's another thing that, you know, when my mother was a little girl, that was, if you'd said bat mitzvah, nobody would have known what you were talking about. The first ones right. happened in the, in the 1970s. Right. Um, and, 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 and for a Jew like me that didn't come from a Jewish community, that it is one of those concepts that like doesn't, right. Cause my mom never had one and mm. none of, I don't think the women in my family have them. Uh, and, and I personally think it's much harder to turn a boy into a man than it is to turn a <laughs> girl into a woman. <laughs> I only have experience with the with the one, but it's a very difficult endeavor. And many, many of the boys that that tried to do it with me did not succeed. <laughs> and I think they might have been they might have benefited from a bar mitzvah, a bar mitzvah experience. Um, interesting, interesting. The, uh, uh, but the, and in one of, one of the, and in, in that section, I think uh, there was a pretty big coincidence. Uh, I think you, you there's an organization, a Jewish organization that you criticize and don't name in that section. And they they had they wrote a sentence with something like, um, or this this young girl has a problem, right? She wants to do a her bar mitzvah project, her bat mitzvah project, but she doesn't know anyone blind, sick, or poor. Yes, <laughs> that was it's it's a quote. I should say it's a quote that she gave to. A yeah, no, I am almost certain that that organization sent a proposal to a group that I was involved with a long time ago because I remember that. I'm almost certain I've read that sentence. Meaning she, the the sorry, just to clarify, the sentence is she didn't know anyone who was blind, sick, or poor. 
Yeah. No, I remember we there's I used to be involved in a Jewish giving circle and we and we would give grants to Jewish education organizations and stuff like that. And I remember one that were that that was that was a sentence, I think that sentence was well, like right up front in the grant proposal. Like that's the fund that that this organization helps little super rich privileged girls find um, <laughs> blind blind people. Yeah. <laughs> the blind I tell you what, the blind really stuck out to me. Uh it when I first read that sentence, just for the reason of like poor and sick are sort of these vast categories, you know, and it's it's it is kind of astounding that one would not know someone, even someone like sick, but um blind is so bizarrely specific. Um and it just struck me as sort of comic, like, you know, poor, sick, or blind. Uh and uh and and I, I don't know if you're I hated to... it so much. It's of hard course, for me of to course. express it's, it, how much it's, I hate this. It's so objectifying, right? And that's when kind it, of why it's stuck. It also me. it perpetuates the notion of Jews as some sort of privileged, ultra privileged class. Uh, totally. Don't, don't even right. know poor people. Right. What is a poor person? Like a, I know I have always known <laughs> poor, sick, and blind people. Always. Wow. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're an exceptional man. I've always said. <laughs> no, it's really not. And that's not an exception. Um, right. Right. There right. are Jews who are poor, sick and blind. Um, and, and again, and again, and, and I think you, and also right, other, and, and, and also, that, that was an extremely Christian thing to say. That was a correct. very Christian way to put that. That's right. In, at a Jewish organization. And that's something that I think a mm. lot of, there are some. Well, let me, wait, can I ask you, can I, can I ask that. you, Dave, like why I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, but like why is it Christian? That is because so uh, it's a that's how that's how Christian charity operated for a very long time. Not the like I don't know anyone poor, but like that's who gets funded. The yeah. Giving charity approach to finding literally the most needy and giving right. them just enough to not suffer for a brief moment. Right, 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 right. Because, as I point out in the book, that's the most sort of virtuous. It's sort of the the original virtue signaling, right? Like you are you are kind of signaling to the divine, to God. Yes, no, and that's that, part of it. Here, she is literally as part of a religious right. ceremony that was invented in an effort to like right. to assimilate with like these are this temple yeah. is not far away from a Protestant church. I can mm. promise you that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it looks, and it was probably it might have been made by the same architect. Right. Uh, globally, our, our temples and synagogues look different. Right. Right. Um, that, and I, but I, I, very American right. thing to like. Totally. Mix, and we, this, we're we're getting into a bunch of mixed interdisciplinary topics right now. But like, indeed, indeed, it's a big blend of Judaism and Christianity and old approaches of charity and right. and social inequality and stuff, just all wrapped up into a poorly written sentence. Well, let me. I just want to say that really is the thrust. Oh, certainly like that first chapter in the book and a lot of what I've written about around it is that this idea of like, it sounds virtuous. It sounds virtuous to um, find the people who are neediest. Um, and what I really try to point out and what I think you very correctly pick up on is like that ultimately ends up objectifying people and reducing them to just these avatars of suffering um, kind of for just our own, um, our own gratification in some way. Um, so it really ends up dehumanizing them to do, to think about people as like, are you poor, sick, blind, or all of the above, you know, like that, that's the only thing that would define them. And that is in fact, that was in fact an early Christian strategy to sort of 
define what makes giving, you know, what makes one a good Christian, but it, it, it has this kind of creepy, creepy factor of, of uh, objectifying people for their, for their vulnerability and dependency. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It creeped, it, it creeped me out. Yeah. And I did my best. I think we didn't give them that grant, I recall. Um, but there are, it might not be the same. It really might not be the same organization. Like there's lots of groups that do that and use that sometimes use that sort of weird approach, um, weird way of talking about it. They're, these are very well-meaning folks. And I just think it's a, they've been influenced by an awful lot of isms and factors. Um, and, and, and they are doing their best to be virtuous. I think if we want to. Sure. No, I think that's right. Well, that's, that, I mean, that's to get that. That's like why I wrote the book because these are scripts that are so ingrained in us, and you know, it, it felt hmm. important to me to sort of name like what's what's powering those, what's what assumptions are underneath those, and are those really the ones that we want to internalize? Okay, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. We're going to start talking about the book. Great. Like I mentioned, I wrote, I wrote down some questions for you um, as I was reading it. Um, before before we get into it, this is I want to point out this isn't this is not your first book. It is my first book. It is your first book. It's my first book, unless well, you count my dissertation. But yeah, gotcha. I misread, so I'm looking at yeah, I misread this. This is a quote. So it says author of can't even yeah. This is but this is a book jacket quote from somebody else. Sorry, yeah. that's uh, all right. That makes sense now. But you're just so we can same question about what was your your you alluded to it earlier. What was your dissertation about? Oh, uh, my dissertation was an early sort of version of thinking through these big questions of um, not just the question of like in philanthropy, where does the money go? How does it exercise power? That's how a lot of political scientists would look at philanthropy is kind of the following the money approach um, and how it might be shaping institutions or whatever. I was interested in the language and norms that were changing and how people did philanthropy. Um, and I had some contact with this from my work in major gift fundraising, as well as the work that I'd done in philanthropy advising um, on a freelance basis, uh, that the language was increasingly becoming more and more um, similar to investment language um, or a sort of language that one would use in a very financialized context. So yes. you're probably very familiar with this, right? That, that donors were speaking less and less about like being part of a community, giving back, uh, and more and more about really not uh, kind of just shopping around for the best return on their investment, best, best ROI. And this takes on many forms. It could be SROI. It can be, you know, a triple bottom line, whatever, but wanting giving to more closely resemble the the forms of confirmation and the forms of, um, I guess, efficacy that they were familiar with in their uh, contact with making money, and that felt interesting to me as a state as a kind of indicator of how collectively on a kind of both on a sort of individual psychological level and on a kind of collective norms level we were changing our understanding of like what philanthropy did how it shapes us how it shaped our understanding of ourselves in relation to other people and therefore as kind of collaborators in building a what i call a common world and so the other piece of the, of the dissertation is that um it draws heavily on the work of hannah arendt um 
and a lot of what she writes about the building and caring and maintaining of a common world and whether or not philanthropy can be deployed to do that. Very good. That's my dissertation. Um, and then, uh, so uh, this book is ostensibly about philanthropy. Got the word philanthropy up here. Yep. Uh, you are come from the world of philanthropy. It's how I know I, we met at a philanthropy conference, and as you mentioned, you've done some philanthropic consulting. Right. And I think someone might describe this book as a criticism of philanthropy. Would you describe it that way? Is it a criticism of? Um, so in uh, in grad school, I wrote a paper, and uh, I think it was about Foucault. And my professor came back with comments where she said, "Well, you brilliantly skewer him, only to then redeem him at the end. What a good daughter." I hasten to add, this was a, a, a woman, a feminist professor. This was not like a creepy, you know, uh, infantilizing comment. But um, uh, so is it a critique of philanthropy? I don't think that's its primary purpose. I think it is a kind of like, I want to, uh, I want to redeem philanthropy. I want to rescue it from this sort of misguided, wayward drift um, into norms that I think actually undermine its core meaning. Um, and practice undermines core meaning. So like, yeah, it's a critique of philanthropy in its distorted form, but it is also a celebration of philanthropy okay. in its ideal form. So I would, so as I was reading it, uh, I, you know, uh, I, I certainly believe that I read a critic, that it's a criticism. Yeah, it's in, that's um, in there for sure. I just don't think that's- I don't point. think you're critic. I think you, as you say at the end, right? There's, there's redemption and you, you point out a lot of philanthropy's successes. And you certainly don't like condemn it or anything at the end. Although you don't, you certainly don't need to, I don't think I would disagree with that professor that you can't, like I've criticized plays <laughs> and, and they were, but and still thought they were worth watching. Oh, sure. Like the, the uh, but I, I think you are leveling a, a strong criticism in this book. And then that, that criticism is of capitalism. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, we'll move on to the next question. Well, would you, I'm sorry, do you want me to, so, I mean, okay. You no, know, my, uh, my question here is, why are you, why is it phrased so clearly as a criticism of philanthropy when you just pretty quickly agree with me that, it, in fact, it's a criticism of capitalism? Well, because it is a criticism of capitalism sort of identified and explored by how it has, how capitalist um, norms have, have infused and permeated philanthropy. So it's you know there are there are many books that criticize capitalism on scales you know large and small. Um, I thought yes. it was you know <laughs> yeah, that would have, you would have been right uh, on a big shelf there. Right, sure. I would have been on a big I would have been on a big shelf. <laughs> I think. So so like there there is of course the the competitive advantage question, but um, that that itself is a, a sort of capitalist strategy. But um, I think to be more you know, more precise. Um, I, I thought it was uniquely significant that philanthropy was sort of curdling into another extension of capitalism because to me, in its ideal form, philanthropy is- Curdling into an extension. Yes, I don't know if that's, you're right. The, the visuals on that don't really work um but like can I, can I try to posit a, a different visual you can i think i think might be helpful yeah. so as i mentioned my father is a historian yeah we and in fact we've had him on the podcast a couple times 
uh, he's one of the more because he had many students, it's one of the more most listened to episodes. <laughs> oh, of course. Right. <laughs> I believe it. Uh, and actually his own, he has his own podcast about golf that is extremely popular in India. Incredible. Um, and I think a lot of, I think many Indians listened to this episode about philanthropy with me and we're just very confused. Um, but he has, uh, I, he has a whole, he did a keynote address at one of our conferences and he has a whole, he did a bunch of, research and has a theory about philanthropy uh he calls philanthropic capital freed capital capitalism enslaves capital yo so any, yo the money the money that is inside capitalism is enslaved wow. it can only do the things that the masters of capitalism yeah uh, and it can only serve capitalism's ends yeah there are ways that you can free so his keynote address was called Freed Capital. I, I really uh, I really dig that. I think that's probably like, a, you know. And that's he calls philanthropy one of the ways. So because in America is an exceptional nation. Yep. Uh, and the exception is that we created more wealth in a shorter period of time than any other nation ever did. And by yeah. a lot, not even like, not even close. There's no comparison. And the, right. the way we were able to do that was with stolen land and with stolen labor. Right, right. Which, of course. Again, more stolen land and more stolen labor than really anyone could ever could ever compete. And, but as a but all of that stuff it has happened in the past and in some cases the distant past and has created huge piles of wealth beyond the dreams of any of the wealthy people of the past um, and in fact our wealthy people don't need to maintain standing armies or build castles right or cover all right. of their first expenses right they have a lot of in fact you talk about this in the book right that we should meet more basic needs for like the poor or for Every day, yep. folks. Yep. The rich have all their base. They have police departments protecting them. Yeah. And and so they don't need to do the stuff that rich people traditionally did to protect their wealth. And they can give it away. They can, and they can give it away in an effort to solve social problems. And there are many, or to just create great works of art, uh, or do other, just accomplish wonders. To yes, yes, yes. Superman's father. Yes, very good. <laughs> no, it's very good. Right. Well, let me, let me, if I, 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 I really, so you I like, like the that. Freed, you like the freed capital theory. Well, so I think, ahead. I mean, listen, like, I think that uh, enslaved and freed are inherently loaded and provocative terms, but I that do like. Intentional, yes. Yes, I, I do like, upon first, first listen, I do like how he is using them. I like the thinking there and I agree with it. Um, and that is very much in line with why. I wanted to spotlight like what is uniquely kind of tragic um, about philanthropy to use your father's term, sort of philanthropic money, almost re-enslaving itself um, well, to the it, demands of capital. So my criticism here is that you keep putting this on philanthropy. And I think that might be somewhat unfair. So it's how philanthropy went wrong, not how capitalism corrupted philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. Think, and it, to extend to my slavery metaphor, uh, this is cap capitalism acting as the master, hunting down its runaway slaves. Mm. Oof. You don't like it, do you? Uh, you no. Like I don't like that they're doing it. Uh, sure. <laughs> well, here's, I guess for me, the problem is that the foil. So let let me let's get a little specific about what what I'm criticizing in the book. So the the big foil to me. Um, is utilitarianism and culminating in the effective altruism movement. Um, 
And so my, and, and there's a lot packed into that, but let me just focus on that for a second. So my concern is that what you have now are people indeed active and influential as philanthropists within the field of philanthropy, commanding huge amounts of philanthropic capital who are very vocal about their um, their epistemological supremacy, not just their financial supremacy, but that they know best. They, they know best, they have the best tools, they have the best systems um, and and very absolutist and very prescriptive. So there's there's a huge wave of attempting to not just um, not just sort of influence capital, but it, it, to to influence philanthropy rather, but to influence the ideology that comes from people who self-identify and act in the world as philanthropists. So I don't think it's wrong to say philanthropy, um, whether by sort of its leaders actively putting forth um, visions of philanthropy that more closely conform to capitalism and saying this is the right way, perhaps the only right way to do philanthropy, um, or through the kind of um, the lack of pushback, the the complicity, the kind of uh, acceptance of these ideologies and their sort of, um, again, their permeation into our practices and institutions without a lot of critical pushback, which again, I will say, I realize it's difficult to achieve given the power dynamics at hand, but I, I would I I do not think that um, people with capital or with access to capital or access to people with capital uh, who are changing who are trying to really change the ideology and change the terms on which that capital is deployed are blameless. I do not think they are just sort of the 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 victims of capitalist takeover. I think they are accelerators of it. Yes, well said. So the uh, one thing I'd like to, we, we want to clarify in here, so there's lots of, obviously there's lots of different kinds of philanthropists. Yes. And I think, and for, I think in, both in your book, and I think you probably, probably will agree with what I'm about to say. Uh, there are, I, and um, as dad alluded to, America has created a lot of people who have excess wealth. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so there are these, there are, when we think of philanthropists, uh, we often think of these these people who who are in control of this excess wealth. Uh, they might have so Gates founded a company. That company was very successful. It's, it doesn't make uh, it doesn't it's not confounding to me that he sees capitalism as a tremendous force for good and is hesitant to criticize it. And when asked, there was one time he was asked a question about like funding income inequality, and he was like, "Well, I'm not a communist." I don't know if you've ever seen that interview with him. You know the one I'm talking I think about? I have. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, what? Right. <laughs> that is honest. We must give he that. Gave, it was probably one of the most honest things he's ever said in an actual. In I an agree. Actual, yeah. Uh, but you can look, there's, we can, there's evidence we can back. He doesn't, he doesn't fund, you point this out in the book as well. And I think you also mentioned it on the, the podcast with Adam. Um, but he doesn't fund these things. He doesn't fund unions or worker alliances or, Right. any sort of effort to address income equality, which is a huge problem that he benefits from. It's the reason right. he's able to, and complicating this is he has solved problems that I think otherwise would not have been solved. Big, right. huge, systemic problems. Uh, he's also made other unsolvable problems harder to solve. So right. fundamentally, no one elected him to do that, which is my 
general problem. And I think we've taken a, where it sort of represents a step backwards into feudalism to, to allow these huge funds to be run by such small folks, right? But that's, these, these are, that's about wealth, right? Yes. There's an increasing number of philanthropists who are professionals who are not giving away money that they or their, or their ancestors earned. They're program officers at foundations or program officers for government programs. Um, it's like USAID is a government program, but right. it operate, operates, it accepts proposals, has program officers, and its operations are identical to a family foundation. There are family foundations where the family members are no longer involved. There are no Fords involved with Ford Foundation. There are no MacArthur's right. involved with the MacArthur Foundation. Right. And I personally see a huge difference. I think a, a lot of the criticism that gets leveled is that the, the ones that are still run by the original wealth holders. Mm. Uh, and that uh, for me, the promise in philanthropy is in this shift. And I do think you get to that a little bit in your book. So you t- when you praise LeBron, yes, a lot about him allowing professionals to do the work. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, uh, to clarify that for listeners, the, one of the things I celebrate about LeBron James uh, is that the flagship program that his uh, foundation supports is a school in Akron called the I Promise School. And I think the maybe the first thing to note about it is that it is not a charter school. It is a public school that has a collective bargaining agreement for its teachers. Um, it has governance by the Akron public school system. So I find it heartening that um, rather than attempting to kind of privatize public goods, which I think is another thing that philanthropy does that makes it an extension of capitalism, um, LeBron is supplementing and partnering with and honoring and in fact, yes, ceding power to public institutions, which is great. Um, and kind of that, that keeps the lanes more uh, cleanly divided, I would say. I mean, I don't know how this works, you know, day to day on the ground, but um, I do think that it, it kind of sets an important standard of like philanthropy is here to supplement and enhance and enrich the fundamental work of the state, as opposed to replacing it with, as you say, Dave, feudalism. So uh, thank you for mentioning feudalism again. Uh, There was a, there's a um, French philosopher named de Tocqueville. And I was surprised that there's no mention of him at all. Yeah. Where would you have put him? So for me, the the important thing about him, uh, so he came to, I would have, I would have included him in when you were talking about the Statue of Liberty, actually. Uh, Yes. I believe he was in fact literally involved in that project. Um, he came on a tour of the U.S. Um, and one of the thing that he, I think he coined the term exceptional nation that I used before. I believe that's right. Yes. Uh, and one, and the thing that he pointed out was that, that really remarkable about America was that it seems to have, unlike all other countries, just sort of skipped feudalism. Yeah. Like, it's not, it, and, it, and they, we, they tried, like the original guy that ran the Jamestown colony, like he tried to become duke or whatever of of that area like like they tried to do feudalism here and it never took it just didn't take <laughs> well there's right? and there was the ability of everyday citizens to create yeah. voluntary associations yes yes, yes and yes, to yes, me yes. a voluntary association is an extra capital activity they are out they free right. themselves from capitalism and they get to do things that capitalism would never be able to do uh and that's just and like that's 
I think a lot of what you're talking about here, what Philanthropy Went Wrong, is going away from that de Tocquevillian <laughs> ideal of everyday, Amer everyday Americans' ability to go out and create voluntary associations that were non-governmental, not run by feudal lords, right? And right. able to address problems the way that the people thought, right? This was just beyond just a mere democracy. Right. Like, it's just an extremely cool, like a, 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 he was super impressed. And it is, I don't know if you've ever tried to impress a Frenchman, but it's not. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fair. So, so to Tocqueville does, I do invoke him. Uh, you're right. He's not in the book. I checked the glossary. And you checked, I, I'm sure. Oh, I can tell. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's not in the book, but he is. I have, um, uh, I had one op-ed published in the LA Times and I have another coming out of the Chronicle of Philanthropy soon, um, where he absolutely is <clears throat> an, an incredible reference for this, this kind of vision of a more egalitarian uh, practice of philanthropy, um, and exactly for the reasons you state that these voluntary associations, and they, they, um, they do make us an exceptional nation, but they also, um, are affirming of people's agency, um, to, to come together, to create something new, to create, you know, some kind of improvement in their world and to see that power, that they have both asserted individuals and in a collective reflected back at them in the thing that they created. Like, I think that's a really powerful feedback loop. Um, so no, he's not in the book. Um, and you know, uh, what Lots can I tell you? Augustine, though. Yeah, it's for sure. For sure. Yeah. What can I tell you? Like I, I, <laughs> I was, I, I tried to keep a light touch on our, on theory. Um, you will notice that a rent, um, who is essentially my like theory booby, like does not really appear, uh, but for like five or six explicit mentions. So I, there was an intentional desire on my part to sort of keep the theory as light as it could be um, so that this book was um, accessible and readable. Uh, I just, thought, I just wanted well. to talk about the Tocqueville. I wasn't necessarily. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I do, but, I, but I will say that like, yes, he's, he's very much like in, he, he is, he is, a common, um, a common companion for me, um, as I attempt to kind of explain what I think ideal for you tell, and I actually didn't know all of the details about the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, that you explain. And I think that that's very in line with what he was talking about. Can you explain a little bit about the philanthropy behind the Statue of Liberty? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, so um, the statue itself was the gift from France. Um, and in the uh, 1870s, they sent it over and they said, it's, it's your job now to like install it, which makes sense. Like, why would France know what to do with that? You know, how would they, how would they know that? Whenever you um, give someone a sculpture, they, it's their job to put it somewhere. Yeah. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Certainly if you're doing it overseas, you know what I mean? Like it's uh, logistically, I, I see the logic there. Um, and I did, uh, so it sat because uh, of there were questions of jurisdiction, um, who had the kind of responsibility of oversight. Um, was it the was it Congress who gave Bedloe Island for this purpose for it could be installed? Was it the state of New York? If it was the state of New York, would there be some kind of like national funding? It was all the kind of usual like federalism nightmare of like uh, who's who's actually responsible for funding this thing. And the result was that um, 
the Statue of Liberty set. It's like if you've ever ordered uh, like a gaming console or an electronic device or something off of Amazon, right? And it just sat in the box because you didn't want to deal with installing it. Like that's that's pretty much how we tre- treated the Statue of Liberty, uh, sat in a warehouse. And um, you might think, wow, what a great opportunity for the um, the sort of marquee philanthropists of the day to step in. They were not interested in this. Um, the, you know, your Carnegie's uh, of the world and Rockefeller's of the, and the Goulds, they were not interested in funding the statue. Um, and Joseph Pulitzer got wind of this issue. Um, and here's where things get great. So he was the publisher of a newspaper called the New York World. He started what we might call kind of our first crowdfunding campaign in this kind of publicized way, like publicized through the media. Um, and he said, we, his, his, um, his rhetoric was, we must raise the money because this is not a gift from the millionaires of France to the millionaires of America. It is a gift from all the people of France to all the people of America. And that he wanted his readership who were largely um, lower and working class to uh, come together to contribute the funds needed to install this statue. Um, and they did. They sent in, you know, in these gifts in these tiny increments of, you know, listed five cents, 10 cents. And it was, it was in fact very um, proto Kickstarter because if you gave a dollar, you would get a six inch replica of the statue. And if you gave $5, you would get a 12 inch replica of the statue. Um, and uh, smaller gifts, any gifts of any size were listed in the paper the very next day. So this is March through August of 1885. They raise over the hundred thousand uh, dollars that was required to pay for the installation of the statue. And it's an incredible, to me, story of um, people coming together to create their common world and feel a sense of ownership and agency over its uh, its shape and its design and see their, their own powers are reflected in it and bring something new into the world. Wonderful. Thanks. Um, I, like I said, I didn't know all of that about the, I knew it was a gift from France. Right. Uh, and I think I had remember hearing that like Carnegie didn't want to pay for it. Right. I remember that. Uh-huh, but who did? And that's what. Obviously someone paid for it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Um, no. And I think that's one of the things that's very exciting about philanthropy and just in general exciting for the world going forward is like, who's going to pay for what? Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Most that's important. Right. I think really fundamentally the most important question of the 24th century. Who's mm. going to pay to solve which problems? Mm. I like that. I think a lot of times philanthropy gets, um, we, someone will just be like, I've seen this criticism, right? They list off the world's like, climate change is terrible and there's refugees and there's wars everywhere. And that philanthropy hasn't moved the needle. And I'm like, so they haven't solved all the world's problems yet. Well, can we, can <laughs> I, I, can I, can I say a thing about my favorite chapter in the book, um, which please. is the chapter on Notre Dame? Um, so there's a, a whole Isn't chapter. Also crowdfund to fix that. That's what you. Uh, you know what? You could say that. Um, certainly there's there's a piece of that. Although I think it's a little bit different because there are there's this combination of like mega mega, um, you know, nine figure pledges, um, from. The... Yeah, I remember when the when it happened and there was all the big response. Right. And that's, and that really is why I write about it because it's such a great microcosm of exactly this question of like, who's going to pay for what? Because the, the issue that I found was, um, 
you had the fire at Notre Dame happening right on the heels of Macron tax cuts and austerity politics and um, major protests like the yellow vest protests about slashing social welfare benefits and increased costs of the standard of living in France. And um, to me, what ended up happening was this conflation of um, demands that are rightfully directed towards the government of France to say, like, this policy must be changed, got rerouted to say, well, if they're not going to solve the problem, then philanthropists, how could, you know, our, our, our wealthy philanthropists and our wealthy families should be solving the social crisis. That's, that was the response of like, how could they pledge all this money to restore Notre Dame when they haven't fixed the problem of like poverty or homelessness or what have you um, in Paris? Um, as if this was a sort of self-evident thing of like, it, it was impossible to do one without the other. And to me, mm. it got at this question exactly as you put it, of like who is supposed to pay for what? And I wanted to lend some, one interpretation that I hope would bring some clarity and say like, it is in fact, some of this is supposed to be paid for by our government, our basic needs for survival and basic dignity of life. And the things that make life worth living are also the responsive are, are excuse me the things that make life worth living are the responsibility of philanthropy in conjunction with and supplemental to our governments so that we rather than conflate those things and say philanthropy is responsible how come philanthropy isn't fixing this we sort of understand like that's not a problem that philanthropy is set up to really solve um, and it's probably not even good if whatever if the philanthropic solution is not I, an ideal one because mm -hmm. it's not democratic yeah no, and I've, I'm, I've been asked, I get asked all kinds of questions by folks. And recently I've been asked a few times um, about philanthropy's role in various intractable, seemingly intractable conflicts. Uh, it's like philanthropy's role in the conflict in Gaza, for instance. Right. Or, which I've not, basically none is my. <laughs> yeah. I think no, yeah, no role. Um, and then, and same with the like border crisis <clears throat> here right. in the U.S. What's right. in particular? So one of the um, largest crowdfunding campaign, one of the like I think the most money raised on Facebook in 24 hours was after we saw images of, of children in cages. Yeah, uh, 50 million donated on Facebook to races in Texas, which is a great organization, and I'm really happy to see them get that much money that quickly. They're going right. to do that's. People should be donating to them. That's great. Take not a damn thing they can do about the kids in the cages. Right. The government owns those kids are wards of the state and the government owns those cages. Right. And <laughs> yeah. Uh vote for a different lead. Like, do yeah, no, I I, <laughs> I, this I, is I a different part of the story you're talking about. Right. That's and a very that's a very brave yeah. in these directions anyway. Well, and that's a very, I think, refreshing perspective on it i'm really glad that you're as as clear and as blunt as you are about it um because i think very you know it's it's hard to hear that political problems need political solutions that's that feels frustrating that feels very out of reach um but it is it is the reality and i think rather than kind of confront the reality very often we want to turn to the nonprofit sector to kind of like uh, somehow offset the 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 very like difficult political climate um and i just don't think it's it does nearly as much as we hope it 
does. And I'm glad that you say so. Again, I think those donations were probably worthwhile, but they weren't helping. They weren't, the, and the reason people were giving wasn't, and I don't think they, Facebook wasn't necessarily helping the matter, implying otherwise. Right. Um, right. And they do, I'm sure there's some way they make money off of that many donations on their platform. So um, the, uh, excuse me a little bit. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about grant proposals. Let's. You mentioned earlier you wanted to, with your dissertation, it was something about the language of philanthropy. Mm. Uh, something I think can talk a lot about is, right, I think about the field of organized philanthropy, which I yeah. consider, and it is a big topic of the of the season that we're that we're doing this, this uh, the last two years on giving advisors, right? So I think organized philanthropy, modern style, the philanthropy that foundations and grant makers and some government entities and large-scale individuals um, are engaging in today is a relatively new field of work. Mm, yeah. uh, much much younger than uh, psychology or democracy or Western. So I think Western style education is a good example. Like the way we run schools is hundreds of years older, right? And like I mentioned, theater, the process of theater. Absolutely. Right? Thousands of years older than, than organized philanthropy. It's still a very young field that has accomplished a great deal. There was a tax law passed in the U.S. in 1908 that allowed for the creation of foundations and um, a couple other things, uh, the, the charitable deduction and, uh, yeah. and stuff like that that was created then. And arguably modern philanthropy began then in 1908. Yeah. Uh, there was a like, there was some of the stuff before that was like kind of transitional, some of the, the Statue of Liberty stuff, the thing Car stuff Carnegie was doing up until that point, the on wealth um, essay he wrote was very influential uh, to some of that stuff. Um, there was a, a woman named um, Olivia Slocum Sage who issued an RFP in the New York Times, but then got too many letters to read. Right. Uh, and all of that sort of ended up forming what we know of as these uh, foundations that have right procedures to apply to. And there are proposals being read and decisions being made. And uh, fundamentally, right, you can go all over the world, you go to lots of different foundations, you find all kinds of different modes of process. But one real big common thing with a lot of them, not all, with a lot of them, is grant proposals. Uh, what do you think about grant proposals? So it's a, I have a, a bit of a sort of Churchillian view of them, which is like they're probably one of the the worst ways, the worst procedures of going about and distributing. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. You're, yeah, I actually I'm I'm I have an essay I've written that's going to be published soon, and you're about to steal a line from it I, mean, I don't think you must have read it or something but yeah i say <laughs> uh, it's like one of the headers in the in the thing it's it's the worst form of philanthropy that's ever been tried except for all of the other forms except for all the other forms right exactly because you know you, the the olivia slocum sage situation is sort of the perfect rejoinder it's like well if we have no procedures and we have no gatekeeping then we're going to be completely bottlenecked um so it's it's hard um because you hope that things are, you know, more um, that that these procedures sort of allow for more discretion, more of a kind of holistic understanding of like what different organizations need, who they are, um, rather than kind of requiring all of them to render themselves legible in this kind of homogenous way. Um, but that said, like I, <laughs> I don't have another solution to this problem. Um, 
or rather all of my solutions, just like Bill Gates's, um, cause other intractable problems. <laughs> so, um, well, fundamentally, if, if we want to use this excess wealth to solve problems, right? It will need to transfer the excess wealth to groups, organizations and such, right? Yeah. And that means some, that there needs to be a process for deciding which organization will get it. Well, let me ask this first. Um, so someone so, must choose, right. someone must choose. Correct, somebody, that's right. Somebody must choose. Um, so the, the interesting, um, counter example that's popped up is Mackenzie Scott's process. <clears throat> so rather than Whoa. requiring the organizations to, you know, present themselves um, for approval, uh, there is a kind of like, the, so, you know, rather than making them go through that exercise, her team decides how they are going to select and does the research and vetting um and sometimes but i yield giving accepted grant proposals that's true that no that's but only recently she, just, i want to be real clear here mackenzie scott accepts grant proposals right but only actually only i've told that all people say this point this out as an example to me all the time as someone who does plan three without grant proposals right and like she does she accepts grant proposals and i would say even in the like earlier iterations of her giving She's doing a version of grant proposals. It's just that people who work at Bridgespan were doing the research and writing these proposals on behalf of the organizations. Yeah, right. No, uh, that that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Well, but but it sort of gets at this question of like, okay, let's take apart what's onerous about proposals, right? Is it is the problem that they are that they have a kind of um, standardizing, flattening effect that doesn't really do organizations justice. Is it, or is it that they are simply like time consuming? Um, and do you know what I mean? Like how much of the, how much of the problem do we solve, um, by ha like, instead of having the nonprofits seek out and write these proposals, we have this kind of, uh, team of, team of researchers uh identifying them and doing it on their behalf like does to what extent does that resolve some portion of the problems that we have identified with grant proposals by removing the burden of having to spend the time on them as you mentioned it it i think it creates some other issues um and and i will say i don't think i think there's very few people who speak one-on-one -on -one with more proposal authors than i do yeah uh and i have spoken to folks who have received funding from Mackenzie Scott. In one case, I had to give my, we do a, a call. So they get a critical feedback report from us and then they do a call with me to discuss the feedback. And one, I was doing a call one day and I woke up that morning and I'm looking over the news and I see there's another list of new grantees from Mackenzie Scott. And my call that day, she's on, they're on there. Mm. So I'm gonna talk to them about how we've criticized one of their unfunded proposals from a few months ago, right? Right. She just got the phone call from, right, getting five million dollars or whatever. Right. In their to their credit, they came, they showed up and were extremely interested in talking, discussing the feedback. I thought maybe they were going to no show me. Right, right, right. Uh, they and some other groups that got the funding have mentioned that while they are extremely grateful for it, that it was a little bit disruptive, the way that it came out of nowhere. Yeah. In some cases, this was like there were there was one group that I talked to that got the gift. 
and they had literally just finished a like six month long strategic planning process. Okay. Where they, yeah. Where they had come up with a five year long plan and they had like, they were in like week two of their five year plan and they, they had to throw it all out, all the work right. they've been doing. And, right. and obviously they had been being considered for this funding during that time. If yeah. there had been communication or outreach, that all could have been avoided. And I, really, sure. I don't, I'm, I sometimes, I'm sometimes in the position of having to criticize people because no one else will. I'm a big fan of Mackenzie Scott and I think everything, I think what she's doing is great. I think it's exactly how someone with that much wealth should behave. I yeah. don't really have any criticisms there. I think some of the like, <laughs> some of the uh, unqualified praise should be qualified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty much in that camp as well, as you know. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. No, and, you do, and to be fair, in the in, in the book, I think I think you are fair on that stuff. But I, it was very interesting for me, and I don't really ever get to have my "I told you so" moments. Uh, <laughs> but I had people telling me all the time, they're like, "Oh, Dave, Mackenzie Scott's made you irrelevant. Grant proposals are are dead now. There's no more. Not going to be any more. We're doing trust based philanthropy, Dave, and there are no grant proposals, right?" But I really haven't heard anyone practically explain to me how we're actually going to replace them. And yeah. I think really telling that like eventually Mackenzie Scott started not just accepting grant proposals, but like, it's a pretty rigid program. You have to have a budget of a million dollars a year right? And, and your 501c3 status, right? no fiscally sponsored groups, like a lot of the stuff that, right. That, that's yep. And yep. I understand why organizations that have to read a lot of grant proposals that want to run a, a program that's possible to run. Right. I, that's why they have such restricted, levers and it's and, and here's the other thing about all the proposal authors i've talked to yes it's onerous to write grant proposals and very time consuming i think where that's a, where i personally think that's a huge tragedy that we're trying to address here is when you take a lot of time to write a grant proposal and you receive no response whatsoever right i will say they want to write grant proposals i don't know any of these folks who are telling me that they don't want to do it anymore right <laughs> they want the opportunity to write about their programs and to submit those proposals to funders that will that will you know respond to them either either yes or no they 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 understand that it's time consuming they want to put that time in but what they're they're just encountering closed don't like not even closed doors walls right 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 yeah i think that's super important and i also think that um there's grant proposals and i'm thinking of the problems that my clients have had there's grant reports um and it, I don't know if you want to get into that question, but to me, like grant reports in some ways, like a proposal, yeah, you like once you sort of work out the language of like, here's who we are, here's what we're doing, here's our theory of change, here are our metrics, da da da, da you know, like actually, like there can be some. I mean, sometimes it's very rigid, and sometimes if you have a relationship with an institution, they're like, just send us two paragraphs and like, you know, we'll kind of work this out with you. In my but, experience, even rigid institutions are pretty flexible about reports. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I think the, I think what becomes time consuming is. They uh, want, you have to get the report in. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But like, it's not like, like with the propo original proposal, there's a deadline. You miss that deadline and that's it. Like they right. would, once you're already a grantee, it's, it's generally a little bit different. And right. like this, I'm going to quote um, Darren Walker. Right. Yep. Uh, like there is no circumstance. It means you don't have to send me a report. Yeah, like the, they're given large amounts of grants. Like that's their job. They are. They take their job very seriously. Uh, there has to be communication between grantee and grantor, and that's right. what that's what grant proposals and grant reports. Are. And when I'm asked to submit a grant report after having been given a grant, 
Uh, one, I think about the fact that I obviously think this is an opportunity to help get the next grant to communicate about the yep. good work you're doing. Yep. And put yourself in a position to get that next grant. It's an opportunity to do the work. And the, again, the proposal authors that I talk to, they're very, they, they want the opportunity to do this. Um, they're doing good work. They want to be, they want that um, in the heads of the funders, right? And the funders are generally inaccessible. This proposal is the only like real way yeah. for them to say in their words, why what they're doing is important and to address the very specific questions that that, that, that funder has. So um, can I, so can I just propose one possible fix here it seems to be like, what here so so what Mackenzie Scott has is the ability to completely staff her team like she can just have a ton of people working on this presumably right like I don't know how many people are on this team but like you she can wouldn't be able to do I think if she did an open proposal process where like yeah. literally anyone in the globe could send a proposal I think that even she could, would not be able to staff that team even she would not be okay fine but given the millions of submissions yeah 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 but given the parameters that she now has she's able to completely staff it right yeah yeah she can she can a reasonable i was just saying there's an there's an unstaffable version of it but yes yeah she, yeah, yeah yeah and she does not lack many funders when they we have because of limited resources we fund invitation only right right, right. that's real they mean it they, right yes, they have a lot because of this because are, this actually is them and Right. Because this actually is a problem of funder capacity, right? This is because when you say, oh, they're not Funding getting any response. There's a lot of work sorting right. proposals and it's right. And to, to not be getting the feedback is indicative of like, oh, like there's not enough staff to service the universe of proposals. And therefore, you're just left with this vacuum of communication. And so, you know, it's like, it's awkward to suggest like, oh, should there be more, should there be more program officers? Like that feels weird to say, but maybe if the problem is we're not getting enough attention, we're not getting enough feedback, we're not getting enough like actual support in, in getting us funding, then like, is that a, then that feels like it's a funder responsibility to more thoroughly staff their efforts. Yes, it does feel like a funder responsibility. <laughs> However, I think we can we can look at many decades of actual practice and yeah. see that they're not. This is a responsibility that they're very comfortable not meeting. <laughs> um, and right. I would and I would add that, that and I've I've talked to foundations that do give feedback to their projected applicants. And I've read whenever someone sends a proposal to us, we ask, "Have you received feedback elsewhere?" And we ask them to share that. So I've seen right. seen a lot of this stuff. Um, and I also I run a program that. Yes. only gives feedback we don't have to choose winners we yes. don't have to do a lot of the stuff that foundations have to do we only give we get to focus 100 percent on giving feedback to these grant proposals and thank goodness so able, for you guys so we're able to do it very well yeah i believe we it. Don't have, we're not I know it. we're not we're not focused on other things i really i don't believe any foundation even if they did staff up would be able to do it as well as we do because they would have other, they would, it wouldn't yeah. be their primary focus. They wouldn't, and they yeah. can only give feedback from the, from the perspective of one funder. Right. Okay. Yeah. My reports have, can, can have multiple different fund, people who disagree with each other in the report, right? Like, right. It, and this is something that they can, so I, I believe unfunded list is, a, is, is a, a necessary part of the social sector infrastructure that should exist um similar to like why you know carnegie built libraries in towns and now we have libraries right. in more towns right you know, and this is a, just a part of the infrastructure that exists that allows yep. us to go forward in yep. other fields so when you wrote your book 
when you you know start going to publishers and everything, I imagine that people before it gets published, people read it and gave you feedback. <laughs> yes. Does that happen? Yeah. yeah like you know, uh, any kind of high level writing in any other universe that that that's part a baked in part of the absolutely, of absolutely, work. absolutely. And so I I think and you're right. I do think it's I I I'm biased here. Funders could. In most, for most case, in most of their cases, for less than one of their average grants, solve partner with unfunded lists and solve this problem for them and their grantees. Yep. And I, I and again, like I said, we've got a lot of evidence that they don't see and they don't really feel a burning need to address this problem. So generally, they don't do that. We do. I do have some. There are funders who have approached mm -hmm. me and we've worked with them at the moment. Uh, Kujalink to do uh, to read global uh, grant proposals, a lot of USAID type stuff. Nice. And soon we'll be working with the Dental Trade Alliance Foundation. And we'll be focusing on some oral health care stuff nice. in the U.S. Uh, but we really, any funder is, has got some version of grant proposals. Like I said, even the folks that don't accept them. Somebody looks at information and makes a decision based on that information, right? Yes. And I would say that if you don't, like sometimes you just, those, those people just aren't giving the groups themselves a chance to weigh in on the proposal, which... Is tough. I However, agree. right, they're the they they get they do get to control their like website and their tax returns and the publicly available stuff that the bridge bridge man type people are pulling from, right? Yes. Um, so like that's so I think if you're writing grants and submitting them out and uh, and that's your world and you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering how to approach these these unapproachable folks, uh, you should realize there might be some people behind closed doors looking up on you, checking you out, doing research on you. Right. Get your candidate profile up to platinum. It's annoying, but do it. Uh, right. Have a website where if they come and they go to your website, they'll be able to get their questions answered to find out who's on your board and see your have make your impact clear on there. And you know, you do all that work. Right. That's how it, that's because essentially there are professional philanthropists behind the scenes writing proposals for you. Right. Uh, and right, you want to make sure that they write the most compelling proposals for you as possible. Um, very, very good. Uh, I have enjoyed, uh, the discussion so far. I have a couple more questions for you, but I just wanted to point out to say that, uh, this is, this has been great. I always enjoy wonking out about philanthropy. <laughs> Same um, here. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, we met, I think we either met at Nexus or we were introduced by somebody who attends Nexus. You've been to some Nexus summits? Yes. So uh, for folks who may not be familiar, uh, Nexus is an organization that puts on various summits, various topics. Philanthropy is a, is a big part of the topic. Uh, impact investing, CSR type stuff. We've had summits at the UN, at the White House, uh, US Institute of Peace. There was one at like 10, like 10 Downing Street, I think. Uh, lots of big time locations. Uh, and it's mostly around the millennial generation particularly millennials who are what you would call next gen members of like family offices, people who are going to be in a position of responsibility with their family philanthropy, but then also a lot of social entrepreneurs attending there and, and, and everything like that. And right. I got to meet a lot of folks over the years from there. And I, and I think one of the things I, that I, my general theory of capitalism's capture or recapture of 
philanthropic capital. A lot of it I saw there, right? Like you'd see, mm. like, like this is a conference about philanthropy. You see Bank of America come and <laughs> try to sponsor it, right? But a right. lot of the sponsors are wealth management firms, right? All of whom offer philanthropy consulting now, which, right? Which, is, which fundamentally doesn't make sense because wealth management firms make money the, the more is being held, right? So right. I have to we... assume. I have to assume that they <laughs> see the philanthropy consulting as a loss leader. Yeah. No, they know that they. Yeah. And and. Absolutely. I've had some very, I used to be on the like Morgan Stanley next gen speakers tour and I've had some very, very candid conversations with them about that. And yes, loss leader is a word that they used. Right. right. Uh, but they, fundamentally they don't want it. They don't want their clients giving money away because then they make less money and they, they have a actual shareholder responsibility in that regard. Uh, so it's weird. It was it's weird to me to see that kind of stuff happening there. One time Comcast came in and gave a really weird speech. The lady mm-hmm. at the foundation, she was from the Comcast Foundation, but she was talking about the back then the merger between Time Warner and Comcast. Bizarre. She was not, she should not have been talking about. Oh my God. Uh, Great. And, <laughs> and, and and also I would say that some of the nonprofits founded by some of our peers, age-wise, have been what I would call failures. Despite <laughs> being able to build for themselves huge brands and respect from the world of capitalists. And what makes them failures? Uh, They failed to address the social issue that they claimed that they were gonna be. (laughs) Right. They might've made, people made, they did capitalism things. They failed to, they failed to free any of the capital. Yeah, 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 right. And you you mentioned some of them in the the book, you gave some details that that I didn't even know. Uh, And in particular, like a Kiva, I knew yeah. no one there was some nonsense there. But I mean, it, looked, it seems like they just straight up lied about the, what they were doing in an effort to bring more money in, right? Uh, I, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna allow you to use that term. I, I think. Yeah, I'm comfortable me, with it. They can yeah, sue me if they want. Fine. Um, well, <laughs> listen. Like, what was interesting to me about Kiva um, was some misleading information was presented to donors. Well, the information was that your dollars go directly to the person whose profile you're sort of clicking on. Um, that was very much the impression that they gave. Um, the reason I'm sort of hesitant to call it lying is because I'm sort of like, if anybody gave two seconds of thought to what sure, was going sure. on, I don't, that's not me. Clear. If right. I, I can re- I, misleading. Is what yeah, I yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure. Crux, right, right, right. That's the crux of my question here. I right. think the, like commodification of philanthropy. Yeah, 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 yeah. In these cases is the like is absolutely. The, you you mentioned Red Kiva yep. and Tom's yep. in the book, yep. each of which were all, were about purchasing things. Yes. Really. Um, yes. And not really about and purchasing things is that's when you're trapped. That's when you know you're enslaved in capitalism. Um, As Bobby Shriver said, we want people buying houses in the Hamptons based on this thing. Like. Yeah. That's, right. I know, that's how we. That's what sustainability is. Right. right. Exactly. That's the opposite of sustainability. I. That's. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, that's that's some nonsense. And I would also. And what what what. Um, so these these folks did enjoy success, of 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 sorts. Yeah. They celebrity, um, money right brought money into these things. Yeah. Whether or not that actually moved the needle on stuff. Right. Uh, there's some, there's some there's other uh, there are nonprofits still around that I don't think are doing anything, but I would have an outlier opinion. <laughs> uh, for instance, I don't care for charity water. Uh, I think a lot of people think they're doing great work. I don't. 
uh, Global Citizen Festival, I think is just, oh, yeah. it's just a concert. Right. Uh, but that guy's on, I see him on TV all the time. Like he's some sort of, like he runs a nonprofit. Um, and, and, and so there, there are those, those sorts of, and we've reviewed proposals from these groups. I call them the like people magazine groups or USA today groups or good morning, mm. good morning America groups, yeah. nonprofits. That would be a really good segment for good morning. America. Right, 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 right. I happen to think on funnel list would be a great good morning. America. I could, we could do a little segment there. Um, right. But it's, it's not, we're not like, it's, you're going to be, you're going to, it'll be easier. Well, what makes them, what makes them good <laughs> media hits. You just right, can right. find something easier than that. Right. What makes some good media hits is like they're doing exactly what those media do, which is selling feelings. Mm -hmm. They're just selling feelings of like, oh, if you're if you give money to this, you're going to feel good. You know, you watch this and you feel good. It's very simple. It's a tight circle. It doesn't require a lot of thought. It's just like it's vibes. You know, the vibe is like I do. Oh, wow. This does this. And you've got these numbers or you've got this like this report or these this logo or these pictures. And like, yeah, wow. Like, let me let me put my money in the feelings vending machine. And so, yeah, um, do you think, and I, I've also seen a lot of folks from our generation, uh, we're approximately the same age. We don't need to say what age that is. Um, but um, the ones like there, I've seen a lot of ones you become big booming things, big brand and everything, and then really kind of fizzle out and not have the impact. And I think parallel to that are, are just a lot of really hardworking folks that are having a impact, but, but really don't have any resources. And are like yeah. really never going to get them because they're not able to like their work is not as easily commodified or they are outright resisting efforts to to commodify it. So I just wanted to ask if you what about what are, you, what are your thoughts on the hopes of our generation? Are we going to get our act together? Are we uh, hopelessly addicted to capitalism? <laughs> um, our, when you say our generation, so so I'm 39. Um, so when you say our generation, I'm a little. I, think, I am slightly older than you. Okay. Only by a little. Um, bit. Uh, so uh, that I think there's, I think we are a bit of an awkward transitional generation, if I could speak in such broad terms of like. Yeah, I'm like the oldest millennial. Right, and I think that um, I think that you know, we were still at sort of the tail end of this triumphant, of, of capitalism triumphant, you know, between like the 90s and the sort of boom in tech wealth. And then, you know, the, like, we've just seen wealth skyrocket in this resurgent way, um, especially like post Cold War. Um, and so I think there was like an early sense and an early sort of formative um, script that said like, oh, like capitalism really can make the world better. I think a lot of us are, to the extent that we ever internalize that, we are unlearning it. Um, we're, we're having to sort of unlearn it through this kind of hard, critical reset. Um, and that might be as we sort of come up against the very difficult realities of like the lack of economic mobility um, for millennials compared to their uh, parents' generation. Or we can, might, some might be coming up against it because of student debt or because of wage stagnation or like any, you know, the cost of housing and childcare just exploding, elder care is going to become a huge issue. So like, there's going to be sort of hard realities that sort of show like, oh, actually like capitalism has left us all kind of fucked. Um, but uh, the generation that I think intuitively understands this is the, is the one behind us. Um, so like Gen Z, 
um, and and those in their in you know who follow from them have a sort of more intuitive skepticism uh, about capitalism and a kind of intuitive um, rejection of its ideology um, and its sort of scripts that its its ability to morph itself into this like you know feel good version of itself. Um, I think there's there's just much more kind of baked in um, rejection of that, but I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a journalist or a sociologist of sort of generational shifts. That's just my, that, that's just one woman's Fair. perception of things. Uh, yes. Uh, and I think, so yeah, you, you're not, so you're, you don't think necessarily that Gen Z will, I, I agree generally, particularly when it comes to capitalism, much more likely to, to be critical of it. For a long time in America, being critical of capitalism was un-American, I guess, right? Right. And like, land you in serious trouble in some, for, for some folks. Uh, and, but, um, and I, this is something I actually talk about with dad all the time. Uh, you're not alone in wanting to criticize capitalism without like labeling yourself a, like I'm a, I could, here's my book on capitalist criticism for you to read, right? Right. Like, uh, no, and I think, and then your point about it being, that being a big shelf already is, is, is valid. It's capitalism is this huge, big thing, right? It's a huge uh, and, 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 and if I can just, and, I want to. Yeah. You mentioned that it's like water; it gets in everywhere. Is it? I think so. Well, I th I want to say one thing about that, which is that. Um, so yes, it's a book essentially about philanthropy, but in my mind, it's it is also perhaps equally a book about humanity and how we define humanity, um, because I sort of take a lot of um, a lot of lift from the idea that philanthropy means love of humanity. And so to me, it's like, well, this is an invitation, if not a mandate, to sort of define how, you know, what, what makes us human? What is valuable about humanity? What, what do we love? What does it mean to love humanity? And it doesn't just mean a love of humanity in volume, which is a very, like, again, I go back to both capitalism and utilitarianism, a sense of like, just, um, you know, minimum number of good for maximum number of people. You want the most bodies, you want the most labor hours, you want the most quality adjusted life years, right? Like there's just a kind of, how do you maximize and how do you maximize productivity really is the kind of baked in belief there. So the idea of humanity is something that's more complex, capacious, that's about our non-productive qualities. That's where I think the, the strongest possible rejection of capitalism can happen from philanthropy is by it's a, a stronger definition of humanity and what it means to love humanity. Hmm. That's great. An Thank excellent you. note to end on. Thank the you. book is called The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong and How to Fix It. I was able to acquire a copy online pretty easily. Is that what you, if, if yes. listening? Yes, it's, yeah, it's at Bookshop, it's at everywhere you get books. Um, you can ask for it from your local bookstore. And I, you're touring this spring. Uh, I, I'm my tour uh, is on pause for the moment, but there will be more dates coming soon. I just got back from an event at Politics and Prose in DC. Very cool. Yeah. I once saw Hillary Clinton there. Hey. <laughs> I saw. I used to live at Davenport, which is not oh, far from Politics. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And, yeah. And I saw Hillary Clinton long before the like, because that's right next to the Pizza Gate. Right. Street. Oh my goodness, that's right. It totally is. It's, I think it's um, Oma the same. Maybe Oma the same person. I um, want to. I, I want to say, by the way, and I don't know if this is something you need to include, but you asked me about my upbringing before, and I neglected to mention that it, at uh, as a teen and early college, I wanted to be a rabbi. 
um, which it feels important to mention in part because it feels akin to theater, <laughs> the theater uh, desire of like, I want to speak, I want to perform, I want to Many engage, rabbis I are captivate. also actors. I have, exactly. I've been, I've been in exactly. a couple, I've been in productions with multiple different uh, rabbis. And also there's part of being a rabbi, uh, some rabbis are also cantors, which right. is they're performers and that's hundred percent performance. Right. Um, right. And so I, I wanted I, you to know that there was a very, fellow I, feeling there. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think you would have been, I think you would have been an excellent rabbi. Thank you. I may well I become know. one. And I, but I also think as the, you know, Judaism is a, is a, is a flexible tradition as evidenced by the fact that you had a bat mitzvah. Right? <laughs> it's very true. And that very true. you don't necessarily need to be a rabbi right uh to go out there and and teach people things and certainly that's something that you've been doing thank you i agree with that 100 percent. i think and in fact i've met as i mentioned earlier like not all rabbis are great <laughs> <laughs> but so, i'm yeah. great i'm great that's the important thing <laughs> you know i actually not for nothing a lot of people write books about philanthropy too that's that's an increasingly big shelf i've had multiple book authors reach out to want to be on the podcast I asked them to send me a copy so I can read it first. Um, and usually I just say, no, I'm like, thanks for sending me the copy. But like this, you didn't say anything. Right. Um, you, you, I knew already uh, when you, you wrote a book, I was sure it would be good. So I reached out to book you on the show, which is great. Um, in general, the guests that I reach out for tend to be better guests than the ones that. I'm very, I'm very, I'm, I'm very show. honored and I, I'm very honored and I, I can sense that you feel that my book does say something, which is the most important thing of all. Yes, I've read, I have read some real garbage books about how to do, particularly like there are some that are about how to do philanthropy, that, but they have no criticism in them at all. Hmm. Like it's just sort of like a book of fluff. Yeah. Um, that I think that, and I think it can just, that, that, that could probably help you to get good clients or that sort of thing. Uh, since this is the season about giving, advising, and philanthropic consulting, and we talked certainly about that um, a little bit, um, but you, you mentioned that uh, perhaps before you wrote this book, uh, at, previously in, the, in your career you worked, uh, as, would you have called yourself a philanthropy consultant at any point in your career? Yeah, I would say that. It was never my primary, but yes, I have, it is work that I have done and have enjoyed. Is there something that you, that you may get back into? Yes, definitely. So if someone out there is like, boy, I bet she'd be really good at guiding my giving. I, it would be, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, listen, it, I, I'm at, definitely get in touch. Um, I'm at amybestschiller.com. That's B-E-S-S and then a third S for Schiller. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I certainly see something for myself of like, how can, how can I help people think about their giving just generally more critically of like, what, it, how can my, how can I make sure that my giving is different from how I show up with, you know, money making um, to the extent that I want that. Um, and to the extent that you want your giving to be a kind of meaningful uh, response or rejoinder to sort of capitalist norms. Um, and that might mean political work uh, that might mean a kind of nonprofits that create a more robust common world that has sanctuaries from um the the relentless demands of capitalism for all of us uh i would be thrilled to help people think through that terrific yeah thank you very much thank for you Dave. coming on to the show and for writing the book and for 
uh, doing all the good work that you're doing. Thank you. And same to you. I'm very, very honored oh. to be here. And thank you, David Jaffe, for recording this and editing it. And yes. Putting it together. Thanks, no doubt by now he has started the closing music. We have, <laughs> we have special music that I had composed by my, one of my college roommates. Nice. That, that we use for the, for the podcast. I, I imagine it's playing in the background now for folks as we, as we take you out. But I guess that somewhere around here will be where David ends. <laughs> it was probably, there was a good ending in there somewhere, right? <laughs>